Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild, as well as I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, just all-around nice guy. Nice. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute. I'm helping them develop their human performance program and owner of Extreme Human Performance. Okay. Let's get to the news, and then we will get to our guest, um, our return guest. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Uh, I wanted to share this quickly. It's something that came up in my pathophys class. I'm teaching the the doc students, the PT kids, um, patho. And we were talking about the immune system and inflammation and this sort of thing. And then this just w- came to my attention. This is literally a week old, this paper. It's from uh, Journal of Physiology, Biochem, uh, September. Resistance training status modifies the inflammatory response to explosive and hypertrophic resistance exercise bouts. So this is by E. Helenin, I think it is, and colleagues. Um, Here's the idea. The purpose of the present study was to examine the immediate and prolonged immune response after two different types of resistance exercise. Um, One for hypertrophy, which was five sets of 10 at 80% of max. And the other was maximal explosive so 10 sets of five with just 60% of one rep max. Hmm. Um, and then they also looked at what 12 weeks of training did to these responses. So they, did, they looked at a lot of immune responses, cytokines, different inflammatory things, uh, white cell counts. And anyway, they took some measurements pre, immediately post, and then 24 and 48 hours post. Uh, this is a lot like my, my dissertation actually and some of the stuff that I've done. Um, in the untrained state, Interleukin-6 increased immediately after both the uh, hypertrophy-type lifts and the power-type lifts, and it looks like similarly increased. Again, so more inflammation and sort of this stress response, Uh, whereas no changes were observed after either of these types of lifts after they were trained, after 12 weeks of training. Hmm. So it says similarly with interleukin-1-beta, and there's some other immune markers here, The present study shows that resistance training modifies the cytokine response, right, that inflammatory response into uh, toward a more of a anti-inflammatory direction. So to me, this this sort of echoes some of the early stuff that Priscilla Clarkson laid down about the the iron plating effects, you know, how you just don't get as rocked um, from training, you know, and some of the the CK responses, some of the damage is reduced and whatnot. So it looks like you're a little bit less inflamed and, and catabolic uh, as well. I guess what was most interesting to me was they're actually trying to fine-tune and they're looking at you know, uh, more traditional bodybuilding style lifts versus the you know, lighter weight kinds of you know, dynamic type lifts. So, 
But that's Did all they I mention thought. anything in there about that correlating to like DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness? Just out of curiosity. Uh, not not in what I have in my hand. I don't have the uh, full okay. manuscript, but that was something that I brought up just the other week as well, right? It yeah. would be nice to have some subjective measurements. It was that, I was mentioning that paper about middle aged versus younger guys and their recovery, and the paper was suggesting that there was no difference in recovery, and they were using some very objective markers, but. I mean, we know that stuff like creatine kinase, it's so variable. It, it, it could oh, depend yeah. on your protein intake and other things. And it's um, so it was neat that they, they chose objective markers in that study. But yeah, I'm always looking at maybe like you do, Mike, a little bit more holistic these days, you know, like from an experiential standpoint, what about joint stiffness and soreness and, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, but at least yeah. by, with these immune markers, um, those types of training, at least in noobs, induce similar sort of inflammatory immune responses, and and they go away after 12 weeks, or at least they get greatly reduced. So yeah, I was like looking to see if they did both, right? Because it's like when you said, Lonnie, you can argue that CK levels don't directly map to delayed onset muscle soreness, right, but they both yeah. kind of go in the same direction, right? If your CK is going dramatically up, odds are you're probably going to be more sore. So it's it's nice to have both because, you know, lifters aren't going to have access to fancy equipment to run their own CK levels and everything else. But we also know that if you only just go by soreness, well, Christ, that could be from all sorts of different mechanisms going on. So Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, but interesting paper. So those of you out there, yeah, more, very cool. it's, it's almost like the bodybuilder versus Olympic lifter type of comparison, maybe. So, yep. Nice. Cool. And this week we have our very special guest, David Whitley. We were looking back in the archives and we found that he was actually on before. So if you go back to 2010, you'll be able to listen to that episode. So I think you said, Lonnie, we're getting close to almost over 500 episodes now, over almost eight years, I think, correct? Uh, we're at 436. Yeah, the midterm goal is to go over 500. Just I just think so few podcasts are probably in that league with never missing a week so yeah cool so thanks for coming here dave if you want to give us just a little bit of a short background on you and we'll dive in a little bit more to your origin story and then we'll get into the topic of the day today is uh, more non-traditional recovery methods possibly getting into some breathing techniques maybe cold water therapy and some other stuff thanks for having me on the show i um I remember being on the show, but I have no idea what we talked about way back then. Sorry, <laughs> um, right, we had to look too. Yeah, I had forgotten that I had done it until you mentioned it uh, right before we got on the call. So I, I, I'm curious to go back and listen to it and see what I know now that I didn't know then. And what <laughs> yeah. I was so, so yeah. certain about when I was talking then that I know it's just, yeah, that's not really true now. So um, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm based uh, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. I have been doing strength-related things as a profession since 2003. I've been doing them as a hobby since uh, probably 1978, 79, something like that. I was uh, a chubby kid with a stutter who wanted to be the Hulk and saw Lou Ferrigno on television um, as the Hulk. And when I could not find a way to get myself bombarded with gamma rays, which... <laughs> which was kind of difficult to do in the pre-Google era. You know, I, uh, I do remember my mom telling me a few years ago that I, uh, 
at one point had gotten out the Sunday paper, this massive Sunday paper that we used to get, and was combing through the classifieds looking for gamma radiation. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And um, and then yeah, so you know I'm I'm eight years old or whatever, and then uh, um, saw pumping iron on TV and saw Lou Ferrigno as a human rather than as the Hulk, and I'm like, oh, so this is how these guys did that, and that uh, you know Louis and Arnold and Franco and and Ken Waller and and all of those guys were the ones that got me started. Like a whole lot of people, I'm I started as Arnold and Lou Ferrigno, and uh, over the years came to um um teach uh with um first with the rkc which is where i met mike and yep. then they're uh, on with strong first teaching uh, kettlebell stuff and strength stuff with them got out of that a little over a year ago um and in probably 2008 2009 somewhere around there i met a guy named dennis rogers who's a performing strongman and started learning how to bend steel and tear decks of cards and that sort of stuff and that is the focus of of what I do now. I still run a gym, but I do a lot of uh, strongman performance, motivational speaking um, out on the road, using feats of strength as a, a vehicle to talk about my approach to mindset, goal achievement, um, reprogramming your subconscious to stop doing dumb things that you don't want to do and wondering why you're doing them, that kind of thing. And um, when was it 2013 or so I got uh, turned on to the Wim Hof method and been practicing ever since and went through instructor certification with him last year in Colorado which culminated with all of us uh, in early November hiking up a mountain there in Granby Colorado in 30 something degree weather wearing nothing but uh, our shoes and for me it was a kilt most folks wore <laughs> shorts but um, I hiked up the mountain in a kilt in the cold weather and um um. Yeah, that's me. If anybody needs to find me, my website's irontamer.com. All social media is also Iron Tamer or Iron Tamer Dave Whitley. So it's not it's not hard to find. Just put those things in, and you'll find me. Cool. One of the questions just about your background is, what to you would you rank as kind of the top three strength moves you've done that you feel have been the most difficult? And then the flip side to that, what are the sort of the top three moves that when you're performing that you would absolutely include because the perception is that it's incredibly hard? You're talking about like feats of strength? Yeah, feats of strength. Um, One of the ones that's really difficult is blowing up the hot water balloon or hot Mm -hmm. water bottle um, until it pops. That... uh, that's one of the ones that once you've committed to do it, you have to stay at the same level of output in order to get it there. Actually, increase output as you go along. So the more tired you get, the more you have to, uh, more you have to exert. Because if you break the seal between the balloon and your mouth, then all the air comes out of it, and you have to start over. And then you know you're doing these huge breaths and getting lightheaded. And um, no two hot water bottles seem to react the same. I've had some that blow up after I've I've blown into them you know 15 16 times and i've had some that it's taken over 40 breaths to get them to pop so oh. and, and then when it pops um, um don't anybody try it at home without proper guidance obviously because it's uh it's dangerous on a number of levels one if the air comes rushing back in and yep. i've heard tell that it'll kill you um 
and I'm not dead yet, but it hasn't rushed back in on me and blown my lungs up. But it's, and I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I could see where it could mess you up a little bit. And then the other thing is when it pops, um, there's no way of knowing where those pieces are going to go. And I've caught pieces across the face and had, you know, whelps across my face where it's hit me before. Mm. And if I hadn't been wearing safety glasses, it would have been directly across the eye. So yeah. that's a tough one, and it's kind of dangerous. And um, it's it's tough because when you start, you have to commit to the end, but you're not sure when the end's coming. <laughs> so, so that's a tough one. Um, what else is a tough one? The uh, long, flat steel that I bend under the leg, some of those are, are pretty rowdy. I did a piece a few months ago that was uh, an all-time PR for me. It's an inch and a half wide, half-inch thick, four-foot-long piece of steel, and it weighs just to pick it up and hold it, it weighs probably 12 or 13 pounds. It's a, oh, wow. it's a, it's a pretty rowdy piece. Um, I shared that with Bud Jeffries. You guys, if you don't know yeah. who Bud Jeffries is, everybody should check Bud out. And he told me, he's, Bud's not just a strong man, he's a bit of a strength historian too. But he told me, and Dennis Rogers confirmed it, that there's probably only about nine or 10 guys that have ever bent that particular piece. So I felt good about that one. Um, <clears throat> And that was in the gym. I would never do something like that on a stage because it takes a long time and you're not sure you're going to get it all the way. And that could be for very boring entertainment. Um, <laughs> and then, um, oddly enough, uh, one of my favorite feats that uh, sometimes goes very, very easy. But then I was in uh, Boca Raton just last week doing a show and had a mishap with it. I the driving the nail through the board without a hammer. Um I drove the nail through the board, and the nail went through just fine, and I usually um, have it set up so that I have a balloon um, attached to the underside of the board so that uh, when the nail goes through, the balloon pops, and the people in the back row can know it. Well, uh, last week, I drove the nail through the board, and I hit it, and I knew it was a perfect hit, that everything was as it should be, but the balloon didn't pop, and I looked, and the point of the nail was pushing into the balloon, and the balloon was kind of wrapping around it, but it didn't actually penetrate it. So um, I had a mutant balloon of some Weird. sort. I, <laughs> and so I'm right there in front of everybody, and I'm like, well, I said I was going to pop this, so um, I just grabbed another nail and went for it. Same thing happened. and <laughs> So I had to pull that nail out by hand, which I uh, I just grabbed it and yanked on it, and it came out. But I didn't really think about that being a particularly difficult thing until after I'd done it. Um, and then on the third time, it popped. But... Um, Usually that doesn't happen. I, I think maybe the balloon had uh, had kind of gotten lost some of its air during the time that I prepared it to the time that I drove the nail, and so it had, it lent its it lost some inflation and and therefore picked up a little bit more elasticity. But I don't know. You guys are the science guys. You can physics that out for me and let me know. I don't really science at all. So, so do you try to find like the cheapest thinnest balloons you can find now? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, these, these balloons have always gone fine. I just, uh, <laughs> I, I will start sharpening my nails though. There you go. So, <laughs> yeah. But as far as the ones that are like, um, that might look a little harder than they really are. Um, the, uh, I always include a 60 penny nail. It's a, which is a six inch long quarter inch diameter nail. And it's, uh, it's a bit of a warm up feat for me. I know that pretty much any time. I could roll out of bed with the flu and grab a 60-penny nail and bend it. It wouldn't be a problem. So I uh, tend to do that early in the show as kind of a, let's establish the groove. And, and if that goes smooth, then everything 
kind of follows it, you know. Um, like uh, like some friends of mine who are competitive lifters have told me, that, you know, always open with an attempt that you know you're going to get because psychologically that sets you up for a snowball of success. But if you miss your opening attempt, like if I miss my opening feet, then I'm just, it's going to throw me off for the entire show. Um, so that one's pretty easy. Um, most of what I do on stage is uh, I've got it set up so that I know, I know that I'm going to be able to do it pretty well. So unless there's some sort of equipment mishap, um, like with the balloon, it, it, it it's not super difficult because people aren't there to see me try to do a feat and then not get it and then and all that. People are there to see me do the feat and to hear the message that goes along with it. So I try to make sure that everything goes as smoothly and successfully as possible. Nice. And a little bit related as we drift towards the topic of the day, is there, like, what's kind of the most sort of back-to-back shows that you've done? Because I know some other performing strongmen, and especially back in sort of the vaudeville days, and you mm-hmm. can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe their performances were, you know, historically back-to-back-to-back. Um, just wondering what your thoughts are on that as we kind of drift more towards recovery from strength feats. Well, I've read that uh, some of the guys, like the Mighty Adam and the Saxon yeah. Brothers and uh, Herman Gerner, um, for sure, I've read that they would sometimes do four or five shows a day yeah. um, during the, the peak of the, of the vaudeville slash live entertainment era. You know, if it's Saturday and every, you know, there's no TV, no internet, no organized sports to go to, people would take their families down to... Coney Island or to the vaudeville shows, that sort of stuff. And, you know, you'd have uh, a rotation of, of entertainers all doing the same show uh, multiple times a day. So if, you know, you had a singer come out and sing two or three songs and you'd have a comedian come out for 10 or 15 minutes and then you'd have the strong man come out for 15 to 20 minutes, something like that. And you would do that multiple times a day. Um, that's, that's a lot um, for myself. Um, I've done two a days before and I've done four over the course of two days, but I've not done, uh, yeah, it's, well, it's not that, it's not that difficult. It's like, um, I structured the show in such a way that, that what I'm doing is, is not on the ragged edge of my ability, you know? So the amount of work that we get done in four shows is not as much as what would happen in a single practice session. You know, like if I'm, if I'm working on bending nails, I might bend 10 or 12 nails in a single practice session. And if I'm doing, you know, four shows over the course of two days, then that's four nails. And, you know, maybe five or six total feats in each one. So you might look at maybe 20, 25 total feats. But if you look at that from a workout perspective or a training session practice perspective, I might do 30 or 40 sets of various different things during a given session. So... Um, there's actually more density involved in a training session than there is in a show. Mm. The uh, the thing that, that I have to keep track of when I'm doing um, a lot of volume in a short period of time in front of people is being able to stay, um, keep my voice fresh and to stay energetic and engaging that way instead of coming out and being like, well, this is the third one and I got one more, so I'm going <laughs> to you guys because I don't want to get tired for the next guys. You know, you just can't present that way. Mm-hmm. You have to have to give every single person exactly what they came for if you can. Yeah, and that's one thing like um, I'm a big fan of metal music as people know. 
And I'm always impressed by watching a singer do a live show where they're literally running around the stage the whole time. Oh, yeah. And they're having to sing on key. So you not only do you have the movement trying to throw them off, you just have the you know old school conditioning effect of uh-huh. if you're trying to sing or you're trying to perform, you're trying to project, you can't be out of breath when you do it. <laughs> yeah. I am. Um... I used to play music for a living, and when I was in college, I was in a rock band, and uh, every year or two years, the guys that I played with, um, we'd get back together and play a show at uh, this bar that we used to hang out at in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, tiny little place, not much bigger than your living room, and uh, we did that a few weeks ago, actually, and um, I was, uh, it was a good show, and and I was always um, fairly energetic when I would... uh, we were doing it all the time and um then i was conditioned to it so i uh kind of lapsed into it's 1993 again mm-hmm. and started whipping my head around like i was you know 20 years younger 25 years younger and uh, when it, when i'm loading my gear up and everything and i'm like my neck's a little fatigued i'm just gonna go sit down for a little bit here and just and just rest this and, and i had a little bit of uh, a little bit of neck soreness the next day from uh you know, headbanging type stuff and all that. But yeah, it, uh, it's definitely the same kind of thing. Can you, can you keep that energy level going and act like nothing is wrong? Act like it's not affecting you, you know? Um, it's, a, it's a delicate balance because if you get completely worn out, then, uh, you know, there's no show to be had. You know, nobody wants to go to a rock and roll show or a metal show and have this thing and be like, you know what? I'm just going to sit down here for a minute. You guys talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> and, um, and we'll get back to the rock and roll here in a minute. You know, it can't be like that. But yeah, it's definitely the same same kind of uh, onstage work ethic. Cool. We'll take a short break here and then we'll come back with the topic of the day looking at sort of non traditional means of recovery. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming, 
and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we're back here on Iron Radio with um, Mike Nelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens, and our guest today is performing strongman Dave Whitley. You can find him under the name Iron Tamer. And we're talking about non-traditional methods of recovery. And I know Dave in the intro had talked a little bit about doing some of the Wim Hof, and I remember seeing videos of you, I think it was probably last year, you had a big, looked like a horse trough that you had put outside your house and you were chipping ice out of it and you would go out and sit in it. You want to <laughs> tell us a little bit more about why <laughs> someone may do that and what you found from that sounds like a wonderful experience? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, um, I first started seriously practicing things related to uh, breathing exercises and, and um, that sort of stuff in the mid-90s when I was practicing Kung Fu. And so I was practicing various uh, Qigong forms and um, some yoga, pranayama breathing techniques and stuff. And for me, it's always what are the similarities between things? Rather than sit and argue over the differences, I try to find what is the common thread between things that, that seem like they might be oppositional. Because if they have something in common, and the rest is oppositional, then the thing that they have in common is probably where the truth lies, or at least where the facts lie, you know? So through practicing the various Qigong and Pranayama stuff for years, um, back in about 2013 or so, um, I had been also doing cold water dousing, which would be where you would just take a couple of like five-gallon buckets of water and set them outside until they get cold, and then you go out and you dump the water over yourself and... It, the air is cold and the water's cold and do you know breathe for a little bit and then you go on about your business and and I thought that was cool and I had a good time with it and I uh, when it would get cold enough in in Tennessee I would do it and um, which means I didn't do it very much because the uh, you know the, the winters are fairly short and fairly mild here so we would get maybe it's not like in Minnesota where Mike is where it's yeah. you have winter and the Fourth of July yeah that's about and, right and those are your seasons. <laughs> So I, uh, I worked with that kind of stuff because I had read some stuff that it would help with recovery and help with muscle soreness and, and all that kind of stuff. Then in 2013, December of 2013, I saw Wim Hof on television and saw him uh, running barefoot in snow that was, you know, calf deep. And, and he's just wearing a pair of shorts and he's swimming under ice that was probably three feet thick that they'd cut open with a chainsaw. And I'm like, well, that puts my... Uh, um, my couple of 
five gallon buckets full of chilled water into a different perspective. So this guy knows things and I want to know what he knows. And so I investigated him on the internet, found that um, he had, at the time there was one book about him. Now there's at least three. Um, and found out that he had an online course. So I signed up for that and started practicing on my own. And the three um, pillars that, that he calls it of the Wim Hof method are breathing exercises. And I'm like, cool. I, I have a reference point for that. Um, cold exposure. And I'm like, cool. I have a reference point for that. And then the, the mindset and focus, which is just all about concentration and, and, and sort of a meditative be in the moment kind of thing. And I'm like, cool. I've, I've, I've been exposed to that. So let's learn what this guy has to learn. Um, did the online course and uh, wound up going out to a lake at the end of it um, for the, the let's sort of test ourselves and see how far we've come day and spent three minutes in 34 degree water with a 24, 25 degree air temperature, something like that. There's a video of it on YouTube. Um, and it was only after I did that that I realized that three minutes was way more than I needed to stay in there. It, probably 90 seconds would have been good. So it took me a while to recover from that. Um, that was in February of 2014. Now I look back now and I can get, I could do that same thing because I've been practicing consistently for almost four years. I could do that same thing and not have any adverse effects. So, um, the adaptations definitely are there, but they take a while to get there. Um, through the um, training directly with him and his um, instructors and, um, you know, actually putting it into practice, sort of doing some self-exploration, I've come to appreciate it from a level that uh, I didn't appreciate early on because at first it seems like it's really just like this hardcore thing like oh I'm going to go subject myself to these extremes and and all that but really what it's about is being able to have the kind of awareness over what's going on with your own physiology that you know when it's okay to step a little bit further into it but you also know when it's a bad idea to step a little bit further into it. So you can approach the cold training either from a um, perspective of I'm going to really get better at this or I'm going to use it as a way to get better at other things. And both things will happen. But really pushing yourself in cold training isn't like it is if you're doing you know, distance running or, or lifting or something like that where, yeah, I can get another rep or I can go another mile and if I do and it's a bad idea, then, it's, then I'm still going to be okay. Staying for another minute in the cold water could kill you. And so it's a, it's a, and there's no getting away from that. It, uh, it's always kind of present right there. That this is, this is awesome and I'm having a great time, but it will always win if I, if I challenge it too much. So, um, that sort of attitude about, um, paying attention to what's going on with the body and mindfully moving in the direction that you want to go fit in perfectly with the way I was already training because, you know, um, Mike, as you know, several years ago, I, um, got back in touch with Adam T glass and yeah. started embracing the, the idea of using biofeedback as a training system. And, um, and keeping making everything as easy as possible so that eventually things that are extremely difficult will become easy. And so that's, that's, I applied that to the cold and it works beautifully. Um, we don't actually start with the cold. We would start with the breathing exercises. And even if someone has no interest 
in the cold exposure stuff, you can still get a tremendous amount of benefit from the breathing exercises from a recovery standpoint because what happens with the, uh, the breathing exercises is you take about 30 or 40 full breaths. So you breathe fully in, and I hope that this shows up in the audio. You, you, so you inhale fully, and then you just release that breath. So it's not, a, it's not blowing out all the air. It's just letting a full breath go so that the air pressure outside the lungs equalizes with the air pressure inside the lungs. So the, um, so the cue through the, through the exercise, if I'm leading someone through it, is fully in, let go. Fully in, let go. And we go at about that pace. And um, it's important to be seated or lying down so that if you, when you start to get relaxed, if you start to get lightheaded, you won't uh, take a spill and crack your noggin open. But yeah. you do about Not so- when you're driving your car. Definitely not when you're driving <laughs> and definitely not in the water. Yes. Um, there's, there's been some confusion on the, uh, the Wim Hof method Facebook page of people will get in the cold water and start doing these breathing exercises that I'm, um, describing and then they'll pass out and go underwater, which is a dumb way to die. Right. So, um, you do about 30 or 40 of these in a very safe environment and you'll notice as you start to get into it you'll get sort of lightheaded you'll get tingling in the extremities you'll start to feel very heavy or you'll start to feel very light one of those two almost like you're melting into the couch or like you're not sure where your body ends and the environment around you begins which is really cool it's a you know it's a it's a free way to experience a type of high that's actually good for you um and then at the end of those 30 or 40 breaths, you'll take a full breath in, then you'll exhale, and after that exhale, you hold the breath. And what you find is that if you could hold your breath for, say, 30 or 40 seconds, which is pretty average for folks when I start talking to them about breath work, if you could hold your breath for that long before we did this exercise with a full inhale, after we do one round of this, it's pretty typical for people to hold their breath after an exhale so with less air in the lungs um, for a minute, minute, 15 seconds on the first round, which that was fascinating to me the first time I did it. And I'm like, okay, he's, he's really onto something here. Um, scientifically, what they tell me, and again, I'm not a science guy. I leave that to you guys. Um, I'm the guy who goes out and tries things and see if I can do them. And I leave it to someone else to figure out why it's working. Um, and I will, will trust you guys on all science-related things. But um, what the Wim started exposing himself to scientific research to figure out what was going on. And um, because of the deep breathing and changing the oxygen levels in the blood, there's vasoconstriction in the extremities. So all of the little capillaries, um, particularly in the hands and feet, will constrict because of the change in the, the uh, oxygen levels in the blood. And you'll see people's hands and feet start to turn white. And then when you hold the breath, after that, the blood has a higher than normal amount of oxygen in it, not because you've, and this is, again, I'm not a science guy, but um, not because you've packed extra oxygen in, but because we've gotten rid of more CO2, and yeah. so as a ratio, there's a higher level of oxygen in there. It's, it's been a little misinterpreted by people like me who don't, who don't science, that you're somehow packing extra oxygen into your cells. And my understanding is that doesn't happen. What happens is you eliminate more CO2 than you normally would. And so as a ratio, 
the oxygen's higher. And so you feel all charged up. Um, after doing two or three rounds like that, um, fully in, let go for about 30 or 40 breaths, and then a retention without breath in the lungs, and then start the cycle over again. After about three or four rounds of that, I will have people um, on the end of the final round, when they exhale, instead of just sitting there and enjoying the, the buzzing feeling, roll over and do as many push-ups as you can do without breathing. And it's fascinating because I find people come in that are maybe able to do 20 or 25 push-ups when I ask what their max number is. Suddenly, without breathing, they're able to do 35 or 40. And um, it, I, I'm not sure why that is, is going on, except that the, uh, the chemistry of the oxygen levels and everything that goes along with that has changed. And you guys can probably talk way more in detail about why that works. But the other thing that the breathing does with that vasoconstriction is the same thing happens when you're exposed to cold. If I go out and I get in my freezer, I have a 23 cubic foot freezer that is filled probably three quarters of the way with water that runs on a timer so that it keeps, keeps it cold enough, long enough, just to have a thin little bit of ice across the top. So the water temperature is probably 33, 34 degrees underneath that. Um, when you get in the cold like that, the first response from the extremities is to vasoconstrict. And so it, the, the um, idea being that the heart and lungs are more important than the pinky toe. So we're gonna, the body's going to shuttle that warm blood to the organs because they have a higher level of importance. And so you start to get white fingers, white toes, cold hands and feet from the, and maybe numbness from the vasoconstriction. But after maybe 90 seconds or two minutes of being in that cold, the signals change and the body's response is, oh, well, this is going to last for a few minutes. Heart and lungs seem okay. We don't want to lose the pinkies either. So those constricted capillaries then open back up. And so you start to get this cherry red skin color. If you've ever been in cold water for um, more than a couple of minutes, when you come out, you'll notice that your skin is very, very red from the vasodilation happening at the surface level with the uh, capillaries as a response to keep this the external temperature of the skin warmer um, which is again a um, um, just a natural response to the stimulus now why this is a valuable thing for recovery and for performance is because if you consider that there's how many hundreds of thousands of kilometers of blood vessels in the human body, if you laid it out end to end, it's like 100,000 kilometers worth of, of blood vessel. Um, and every so often at, at intervals, there's these muscles in the vessels that can, that can constrict and relax. And so by training those muscles to constrict and relax more frequently and with greater intensity, because if, if we look at modern living, we're very rarely above 73 or 74 degrees Fahrenheit, very rarely below 65 or so Fahrenheit. And so the need for that adaptation of being able to constrict or um, dilate those blood vessels sort of is dormant because we don't encounter the stimulus that we need to, to stimulate it. So by purposefully getting in the cold and by purposefully using these breathing exercises that that work with that vasoconstriction and vasodilation, we're training those tiny little muscles that are controlled by the autonomic nervous system to either make the blood vessel smaller or make the blood vessel larger. 
And if you consider that you have all of this distance of blood vessels running through the body, if you can get all of those tiny little involuntary muscles to pick up a little bit of the slack, it takes a lot of the load off of the heart muscle. So there um, are people that have done the Wim Hof method and done no other exercise that have lowered their resting heart rate because their uh, circulatory system becomes more efficient by including these um, extremity um, and, and venous and arterial uh, um, sphincter muscles that are, that are controlling the, the dilation of the blood vessels to help out with the, um, the job that the heart's doing. So They're kind of what they would say, decreasing the afterload, the amount of pressure the heart has to contract against because yeah, they've got the, more room, so to speak, for the fluid to go. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and, and the way that I think about it is it's just like if I put a put um, 100 pound barbell on the floor and ask someone to pick it up with one hand out away from their body, then they're only able to use you know, the muscles of the shoulder and the arm to do it. But if they straddle it and use two hands, then they've spread the load across their entire body. So um, instead of the heart having to do the majority, you know, like all of the work, then um, by training the blood vessels to, to do that, then the heart can do less and still get the same effect. And it's, it's our birthright. I mean, if we look back at the way um, we evolved over time, we aren't supposed to be, or we're not designed to be in the conditions that we live in perpetually with a constant temperature, constant supply of food mm-hmm. and and breathing recycled air most of the time, you know? So, um, there's something to getting out in nature and, and reconnecting and reclaiming the part of our DNA that bridges between where we are now and, and wild animals. Yeah, I think of, I said my research was in metabolic flexibility, but I've thought for several years now that it's basically physiologic flexibility, right? And I know we've talked about this before, Lonnie, about, you know, humans are kind of homeotherms where, yeah, we do need to operate at a, a set temperature, but, you know, with training, we can expand the temperature of which we can keep our internal temperature still working well. And I think there was a study, I want to say it was on fishermen, like commercial cold water fishermen, where they had been doing it for so many years that I believe in their hands, they actually had the opposite response. So instead of them losing blood flow initially, that the blood flow would actually increase to their hands in order to try to keep them warmer. And Mm -hmm. the temperatures that they could work in were significantly lower than someone who just sort of got dropped into that environment and hadn't spent, you know, half their life doing it. Yeah, you know what's interesting with that too is um, I saw I either read a paper or saw a documentary on Inuit peoples and how they have they oh, sure. they cycle vasoconstriction and vasodilation in the cold far more efficiently than people who aren't. So I think there might be even a genetic component, which would make sense, right? Just through selection right. of living in an environment like that over the years. One of the things that I think is neat about this is it's taking the the classic sort of training principle of overload and it's applying it to like, you know, chemoreceptors in your aorta, yeah. your carotids, yeah. whatever. So not just from temperature, but just from that, that hypocapnia, you know, that temporary metabolic alkalosis from heavy breathing like that. And what I think is interesting about that is not just the peripheral vasodilation, but 
there's plenty of research on the physiology of acidosis being catabolic, right, to muscle tissue. And if you can make yourself alkalotic, even if, I mean, it would be very temporary, I would think, after a period of, of this sort of deep breathing. But you wonder what that would do to adaptations over time, you know, when it comes to um, those very small changes in pH balance and, you know, what it might be able to do to muscle protein synthesis or catabolism or, or whatever, you know, because I think a lot of that is probably uncharted as far as trying to manipulate and get training adaptations out of something like chemoreceptors, you know, but it's, it's, it's yeah. interesting. And I think about even on a, a big level, it's like, what are we actually trying to do with training is in, in essence, you're trying to create a, a fast transition, right? If Bill's going to deadlift some monster weight, in essence, he's trying to get it off the floor where it's not moving to moving and locked out or Olympic lifting or squatting or whatever you're, you're basically trying to build a faster transition, right? So Olympic lifting has a faster transition than power lifting. And if you look at, say, like CO2 levels, so you're talking about breathing, so when you're, in essence, doing a form of hyperventilation, you're blowing off more CO2, right? So you're actually driving the level of CO2 down super low. But then you're combining that with a breath hold, right? And your metabolism is still running. So now you're not taking in any more air. And what you find is that your CO2 levels are now going to build up higher and higher and higher. That's one of the primary drivers in order to breathe again. Right, yeah. So I've been kind of fascinated about how you're, in essence, going from one extreme of CO2 to the other end. But you're doing it in a state where you're not really doing physical work, right? You're not running repeats on a, a wind gate if you're on a bike or, you know, Tabata sprints or whatever. Right. Um, so I found that it's, for me, it's like fascinating way to try to play around with different levels, but it's something you can do at a higher frequency because you're doing it kind of independently of all that other kind of tissue work at the same time. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, in, in my experience, um, in any time you deplete yourself of something, it seems that the ad adaptive response there is to increase the ability to store it. You know, sure. you, you see this with uh, with people who do carb cycling, and um, you know, you eliminate carbohydrates, and then you do a bunch of uh, of exercise that would traditionally require glucose as a fuel source and you deplete all the glucose out well then when you consume carbohydrates again you tend to have a capacity to store a little bit more um has been my experience um and i've again i'm not the science guy but uh, yeah it's the old theory of you know carbohydrate loading yeah super yeah, compensation yeah. So, so carb that way. well it, it it stands to make it stands to reason that if you can do that on a cellular level of carbohydrates um, and you can um, you can survive without carbohydrates. You can't survive without oxygen. It would make sense that the the inherent wisdom of our physiology would have that same kind of failsafe built into it. So let's increase the ability to get rid of CO2 when we need to and to um, utilize oxygen more efficiently is is kind of where where it seems to go with me. Um, one of the cool things about training with Wim is um, he, comes from an area of kind of figuring this out for himself, but he doesn't want it to appear as mystical or, or esoteric if, if he can keep from it. So he's subjecting himself to various experiments in the lab. Um, one of which was 
he went into a lab in uh, the Netherlands and they injected him with an endotoxin because he claimed to have control, conscious control over the autonomic response of his immune system. And they said, okay, we'll test it out. So they inject him with E. coli um, because the one of the, the guys who was doing the research um, was working for a company on drugs that suppress and boost uh, immune system response. And so they, they will inject you with this benign E. coli and you'll have these horrible flu-like symptoms for three or four hours and you'll wish someone would kill you and then you just get over it and you're fine. Um, at the peak of what should have been the worst of all the symptoms when you should be having these horrible headaches and nausea and, and all of that, um, Wim said he had a little bit of a, of a twinge of something in his head, but it only lasted a few seconds. And so they're like, okay, you, you've shown sign, you know, in, in the lab that you can do what you claim you do. So we should study you because you're like a genetic outlier and, and we need to figure this out. And he says, no, anybody can do what I do. I can teach you to do it. And so he took a group of 18 guys through four days of training, and then they randomly selected 12 of those 18, replicated the experiment on these people with no previous training, which is four days of training, and the results were the same. So very, very quickly, you can get this adaptive response to sort of reclaim parts of the uh, anatomy that that um, are of the, the physiological functions that seem to be lying dormant. It's like they're there. We just have to, to know how to flip the switch to turn them on, um, which makes you know the same amount of sense if, if to relate it back to to uh, dieting again. If someone just cuts out carbohydrates completely, it's a matter of what four or five days, and they're switched over to using ketones as their primary fuel source. Yeah, yeah. I've always been fascinated about what is sort of the backup system. Yeah. And I think the more you look at that through a survival lens, you'll figure mm -hmm. out what that is, right? So right. in terms of whether that's breathing, whether that's metabolism, mm -hmm. whether it's fasting, maybe some strength stuff. Um, yeah, and I think sometime occasionally going into that range is probably going to be of benefit. Yeah. Um, cool. So well, we've got... And I, and I, and I go think ahead. too that, that the way you go into it, you know, if you're like, I've never, I've never been colder than 70 degrees. I'm going to go spend 30 minutes in an ice bath right now. You'll die. But if you, <laughs> yeah. if you, um, if you approach it gradually and and keep it comfortable, um, but not not so comfortable that you're not getting the response out of it, then you can very quickly build up uh, um, a lot of beneficial responses to. Uh, to the world around you. Um, uh, and I did want to mention, um, I had to pull it up on my computer to see which book it was, but there's a biology textbook called biology now. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's written in English. So, um, I don't know what schools are using it, but definitely one of these Dutch schools is using it. And there's an entire chapter, chapter 22, where they talk about whim and, um, the endocrine and the immune systems and the kind of training that he does and, and, teaches and why from a textbook standpoint what's going on there so um mike if you're interested in that i can probably uh, get you a copy of that yeah no that'd be super interesting and we just got like two minutes left here and then as we wrap up for people listening what would you sort of recommend that they do so i've listened to the interview they go oh that's kind of cool i want to try some of this you know maybe breathing maybe some cold water stuff 
um, what would be kind of the the top sort of two takeaways that they can do to kind of put this into action? Well, the uh, simplest thing is to do what I did, um, and that's to go to, I believe the website is innerfire.nl, and um, they have a, a series of free videos that show the breathing exercises. There's um, uh, an online course that you can pay and sign up for. There are th- I think 27 or 28 um, Wim Hof Method instructors in the United States, and I don't know how many in Europe. So um, you can look at the list of instructors if you want to get some some one-on-one instruction or find a workshop. Um, I'm on the list. I was actually talking. Had a guy contact me the other day for a for because um, he wanted to to learn the method, and so he found me on the. Uh, the Wim Hof Method website, so I know that nice. that's out there. And if anybody is uh, interested in contacting me directly, um, irontamer.com is the website. Iron Tamer is all the social media, so um, I'd be happy to talk to you more about that. But um, that would be the the main thing is to don't don't just listen to Wim on a podcast and then say, okay, I know everything I need to know, and then go out and start trying to to do crazy things. Get a good solid foundation in it first, because that's the equivalent of listening to a. Uh, um, Conor McGregor on a podcast and then thinking that you can step <laughs> in somebody. I mean, you can, but you'll get knocked the hell out real quick. Yeah. And there's obviously, I mean, I think that's solid advice because there are some dangers with, you know, doing it and, and things of that nature. So it's something, it's like anything else, right? There's a risk reward potential there and you want to make sure that you know what you're actually doing with it so you can do it. That's effective and more importantly, actually safe too. Yeah. And the danger with the cold is before it gets bad, it gets really good. So you get in and there's this initial shock and then you start to relax and you start to feel very euphoric. And it can be very easy to get lured into that. Uh, oh, everything's fine. I'm, I can stay here for all day. And, I, and, and then you just kind of go to sleep and you never wake up again. I don't want to be that guy. And mm-hmm. I don't want anyone who's hearing me talk to be to go through that either. So, um, do it at your own risk, kids. It's a lot of fun, but there's definitely a risk. Yeah, and there's been what they call shallow water blackouts and all yep. sorts of nasty stuff can happen to you. And yeah, that's the last place you want to black out is in water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on the program today. We greatly appreciate it. And hopefully the listeners have been exposed to something that they probably haven't had maybe exposure to before. And yeah. It can help them with their recovery. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for.
There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each haul of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need. 